Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Therefore, stand, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, the words may be given to me in the opening, my mouth boldly, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You can be seated. And... Lord, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts may be pleasing to you in Christ Jesus. We need your Holy Spirit here this morning. Help us. Help me. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. What is the Bible? If we were to ask people, what is the Bible? For many, the Bible is just a love story. Others see the Bible as a collection of love letters. Others still would think that the Bible is just a manual for self-help. So as whatever you need, you just go and try to find a passage that will help you in this whatever life circumstance you're going through. And others think that the Bible is just an anthology of disconnected ancient stories. I believe that the Bible is God's glorious, glorious covenantal drama of salvation. Amen. It's God's glorious covenantal drama of salvation. And when you think about the word salvation, you cannot but think about war. Salvation is completely and deeply related to war. Salvation requires victory, conquest, battle, bloodshed. Thus, one of the ways that we can look at the Scriptures is as a war book. The Bible is a war book. If it's about salvation, it's about war. Different from the Quran, the Bible teaches us how to engage in warfare, in battles. So, for example, the Bible described God as a God of war. So, in Exodus 15.3, Right after they crossed the Red Sea, the first time we, we have in the Scriptures the singing of God's people. And they're singing about the Lord as being a man of war. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. One of the names of our God is the Lord of hosts. Or when we are singing, a mighty fortress is our God. Yahweh Savaot, the Lord of armies. This title for God appears 200 times in the Old Testament. 200 times. 
the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts. The, the, Hebrew, war, the Hebrew word for war appears 300 times, more than 300 times in the Old Testament. That's a lot. That's a lot. I think about Jesus. Jesus, the beautiful Lamb of God, the meek and gentle Jesus, is also painted as a warrior. We cannot remove this portrait of Christ. So when He comes... All his mighty works, so you think about Jesus, his healings, delivering people from evil spirits, restoring people. It's picturing Jesus as a mighty warrior, binding the strong man and releasing people from captivity. That's the picture we have of Jesus. And even the last picture that we have of Jesus in Matthew's gospel is Jesus on top of a mountain, the mountain of God, as the Son of man, and he says, all authority has been given to me. And then what does he command? Go, therefore, and take the captives out of the kingdom of darkness, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of a warrior. The first and the last chapters of the Bible show that the Scriptures is one drama of war. And you have this major war between the serpent and the seed. Right in the beginning of the Bible, towards the end of the Bible, you see it's about of war. You have a war in the mountain of God, that's the Garden of Eden. And then the Bible ends with another war in a mountain. Revelation chapter 19. And the victory of the Messiah, the seed, the male seed. One scholar, he says, Warfare permeates the pages of the Bible. The blood of conflict and conquest soaks the parchment penned by the apostles and prophets. As if you can even see blood in the pages of the Bible because there is just so much war in the scriptures. The Bible is a book of human and divine battles. I like what Temper Longerman, he writes, he says, Violence, conflict, and warfare are found throughout the Bible. From Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, we read of strife and fighting. Only the first two chapters of the Bible, creation, the last two, restoration, fall outside the long time of human conflict. But the, but the conflict is more than human. God himself enters history and takes the role of a warrior fighting both human and spiritual enemies. So, wh Why is that important? Why do we talk about that? What is the point of all this information? Because when you come to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, Paul is not creating something out of nothing. It's not ex nihilo that he's creating this spiritual warfare. His mind is saturated with the story of the Bible. Paul's mind is immersed, is baptized with the drum of the Bible. So when he comes to Ephesians, his mind is just the outflow of all the knowledge that he has of the Scriptures. The drum of Scripture is a drum of war. So Paul is not creating something new, and that's very important for us to keep in mind. And it's important because the story of the Bible, the story of war, is our story. I don't know, sometimes we think that the story of the Bible is a story out there. It becomes like a mythology out there. No, the drum of the Bible is our drama. Amen? If you are in Christ, if you are God's people, you are there. That's our story. And we must, we must allow the story of the Bible, the drum of the Scriptures to shape our mindset. We are always, brothers and sisters, 
We are always being shaped by a story, by a drama, and it's either a lie or the truth. Our lives are being shaped either by the story of the world, Satan, or our lives are being shaped by the story of the Bible, the drama of the Bible. And when we let the story of the Bible shape us, we realize that we are in a warfare and we are going to be much better equipped to stand firm on the evil day. Amen? So, what I want to do is just to bring an overview of the spiritual warfare, what we saw so far. First of all, we saw that we must have a sound view of spiritual warfare. And the problem we have is two extremes in the Christian church. We have two extremes. We have the first extreme is the one who is always overemphasizing spiritual warfare. So everything is demonic. Everything is a warfare. So you run out of gas. You got to blame the demons and Satan for running out of gas and not your own incompetence for not putting gas in the car. Uh, the food burns and it's Satan who caused you to burn the rice. So you are always putting blame on Satan and demons. And then you have the other extreme, and especially in the Reformed circles, where we de-emphasize as if there is no spiritual warfare. That's a thing of the past. No, demons. That was back then. We don't have these things anymore. So we, we must be very careful. We must let the Bible instruct our understanding of the spiritual warfare, the reality, how to balance the reality that we have, an enemy who is ferocious, he's evil, and at the same time we have a sovereign Lord. We, we must be able to let the Bible, Sola Scriptura, as, as was read here, Second Timothy 3, the scriptures, they are sufficient to instruct us in spiritual warfare. Amen? We don't need to be getting books from other people who are adding to the theme of spiritual warfare. We, we let the Bible teach us. Amen? So to have a sound view, I believe we've got to have a sound view of Christology and eschatology. What is Christology? The study of Christ. And then you have eschatology, and that's the study of the last thing, the last days. And as we think about the, the Christ, the study of Christ, Christ coming... Jesus comes, His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, brings what we call the last days. The inauguration of eschatology. So the coming of Christ is very important in inaugurating the last days. And when we think we are living the last days. And in these last days, it's marked by the already and not yet. Already and not yet. What does it mean? We already have victory in Christ, but has not been yet consummated. Amen? I like what John Frame, he writes, he says, In His atonement, Jesus destroyed the power of sin. Yet sin will cling to us until His return. He has destroyed Satan in principle, but His victory will not be consummated until the Lord's return. Then he says, Oscar Coleman compares this to the distinction between D-Day and V-Day in World War II. And he says, On D-Day, Allied troops entered France, in principle, dooming the Third Reich. But it took many months of bitter fighting, almost one year, remember? Many months of bitter fighting before the Nazis rendered on V-Day, Victory Day. The cross was like D-Day, 
and Jesus' return will be like V-Day. We live between the times, always in the tension of the already but not yet. And during that time, there are many battles to be fought. But we fight, and that's very important, we fight from the standpoint of victory in Christ Jesus. In Him, we are more than conquerors. Amen? But we cannot deny the reality that we have an enemy. We have an enemy. And he's furious. And I like what Paul says in, in Romans, Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will, it's coming the time, when you finally crush Satan under your feet. And that's shortly. It's coming. So we saw, and you can turn with me back to Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. We read earlier this morning, Daniel chapter 7. Look at verse 12, and, and we see this already but not yet in Daniel chapter 7, with Christ being ascended into the throne. Christ, the, the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds is not the coming of Him down to earth, but it's His coming up to heaven. And that's what takes place. He comes with the clouds of heaven, and He receives the dominion, the power, and says in, in, in verse 12, He says, As for the rest of the beasts... Their dominion was taken away. Huh. The dominion of the kingdoms of this world was taken away. And was given to whom? To the Son of Man. But look, it says, But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Meaning what? They're not fully consummated. There is a time that they're still active. And the same thing it said in verse 25. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half time. And half a time. Meaning, there is a time of suffering. Even with the victory of Christ, there is a period of persecution and tribulation. But he says, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. That's very similar to what takes place in, place in Revelation chapter 12. And you can turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. And that's what we are looking at, the already and not yet. The already victory of Christ, but has not yet been consummated. So there is a time of persecution and suffering. And that's what we see, especially in verse 12, Revelation 12, 12. Yes, therefore, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Because what? He knows that his time is short. So there is this, not yet, he has not been consummated, and he knows that his time is short. And that's why he's so aggressively trying to destroy the church, the people of God. So it's very important to keep in mind this already and not yet. Already and not yet. If you take either extreme, you're going to have a perverted understanding of warfare, spiritual warfare. If everything is already, then you're not going to be concerned about spiritual warfare. And if everything is not yet, you're going to be living a life of defeat and Satan is ruling over everything. So we must understand this balance of already and not yet. 
And that's exactly what Paul has in mind when we come to Ephesians chapter 6. They're already not yet. It's very important in the whole letter of Ephesians. And as we're looking at Ephesians, the main body of the letter from verse 3 of chapter 1 to verse 20 of chapter 6, that's the main body of the letter, can be divided in two parts. Orthodoxy, chapters 1 through 3, and orthopraxy, chapters 4 through 6. What is orthodoxy? Right doctrine, right teaching, and what is orthopraxy? Right living, right the, the putting of the doctrine practice in our lives. So that's all we have in many of Paul's letters. You have the doctrine, the sound doctrine, and the sound doctrine will lead to sound living. And that's all we have in Ephesians. So, for example, you can see with me in Ephesians, going back to Ephesians there, in chapter 1, and it just... Verse 2, grace to you and peace. So we already have peace from God our Father. And then he talks about all the blessings in chapter 1 that we have in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us. And he says how we are blessing the beloved. So here we have all the blessings that we already have in Christ in chapter 1. And you can go to chapter 2. I also look at verse chapter 2. Starting verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when you were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And look at that. In the past tense. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Look at how beautiful it is. Look at chapter 3. All the already that we have. He says, verse 10, So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So the church is this theater of God's wisdom already. Already, already. We already have all these blessings. And then starting chapter 4, you can see that there is a change. Now with, there is already, but there is not yet. So... We've got to keep fighting. We've got to keep working holiness, sanctification, fighting against not only battle, not only the sin that's remaining in us, but battling against the kingdom of darkness. So you see that Paul is applying this to his whole letter of already and not yet. So Frank Thuman, he says, let me just move out of here. That, that's just to show how Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 is completely related to the rest of the letter. All the vocabulary that Paul uses is flowing from the preceding chapters. But Frank Thuman, he writes, Although the triumph of Christ over the hostile heavenly powers and the share of the church in that triumph are so certainly that Paul can speak of them both in the past tense, they are not yet complete. The days are still evil and shrouded in darkness. And he says, the devil, unwilling to surrender in the face of certain defeat, continues to fire flaming arrows at the church, and along with his supporting cosmic forces, to engage the church in a spiritual struggle. So, you think about Paul, first chapters already, we already have all these blessings in Christ, seated in the heavenlies. We have salvation, we have redemption, forgiveness of sins, we have peace with God but yet has not been consummated. And that's that picture we have in chapter 
5, as we are coming towards the end of Ephesians, you have this picture of the perfect church. Unity in the church, unity in the family, unity in the workplace, right? The, the, the beautiful families, wives submitting to their husbands, husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. We have children obeying their parents. All the things in Ephesians. The unity of the church, and then he said, there is a spiritual warfare taking place that will try with all its power to prevent us from enjoying the blessings of God. So that's where we are in the context of Ephesians. That's very important as we are thinking about spiritual warfare. Also, we saw the context, the context of the, the, the armor of God. Uh, and that should not be there, that verse, but it's okay. It's verses 19 and 20. But this, the Old Testament context, we, you, often we come to this armor here, and we think the, the armor is from the Romans. And we are always trying to picture the Roman soldier, right? That, that's our inclination is to think about the Roman soldier. And so you hear people say, oh, Paul is in chains, and he's surrounded by, a, by Roman soldiers, so he's looking at the Roman soldier, and that's why he's riding the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. But we've got to remember that Paul is actually going to the Old Testament. All the parts of the armor are coming from especially Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 59, the Psalms. So Paul is Primarily using the Old Testament and not the Roman or Greek soldier, okay? That's very important. Why is it important? Think about why is it important that Paul is drawing from the Old Testament? What we saw in the beginning, it's a drama. It's the story. Paul is in this story. He knows the story of God. He knows the Old Testament. And it's flowing. This armor that he's talking about is connected to the whole drama of salvation. The war and the armor are part of a larger story. It's not something new. So that's very important to keep in mind. And for us, when we study the Old Testament, when we read the Old Testament, to see as part of our story. We are in Christ. It's our story, the Old Testament. Amen? And then Paul talks also about our enemy. We need to know our enemy. We saw the importance of knowing who our enemy is. And Paul in verse 12, he says of chapter 6, it says that our struggle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then in verse 11, he identifies our great enemy as the devil. And in verse 16, he calls the devil what? The evil one. And then we start noticing that this enemy is real. He's spiritual, but he's real. Sometimes you think that just because he's spiritual, he's, he doesn't exist. No, he's spiritual. He's real. He has a real anger towards the church. He has a real hate towards Christ. And he has a real power to come after the church. And as we study our enemy throughout the scriptures, we see that he has very different names. And just like with God, God has different names, and all the different names express what? The, the different attributes and the character of God, the different names of God. And the same with Satan. The different names that he has show the different aspects of his nasty, gruesome, heinous character. So he is the devil. The devil. The Greek diabolos. 
pertains to engagement in, in slander. His major form of attack is through words. You see, he tries to counterattack God because God's major power is his word. So Satan tries to counterfeit and attack through words. So, but his words are slanderous, false words. He attacks the character of God and Christians and other Christians with false words. He's not only the devil, he's Satan, Satan. That means to oppose, to accuse, adversary. And he is our adversary. We have an enemy. We have an adversary. He's called the evil one. He is the emblem, the epitome of evil. And think about what is the opposite of evil? Good, beautiful, sound, healthy. Everything that's opposite of that is our enemy. He's the opposite of everything that's beautiful, lovely, gracious. He's the emblem of evil. He's not only the evil one, he's also called the Leviathan. His picture as a Leviathan is his picture of, of a dragon in the Old Testament. And then we come to the New Testament, he's called the Dracon, the dragon. Speaks of his character as the, a devouring one. In Revelation 12, he's described as a dragon with a red collar, meaning his bloodshed. With seven heads and ten horns, his power. He's called the serpent. Reveals Satan's character as a cunning deceiver. He's deadly, just like a poisonous snake. He's cunning, just like a serpent. He's called Beelzebub. The prince of demons. He's in charge of demons. He's also called the tempter. He loves tempting. He's also known as Apollyon, the destroyer. He's compared to a roaring lion since he's ferocious, eager to devour the church. He's known as the father of lies, the thief, the murderer, and many other names that will describe his heinous character. And it's important to know because as we know his character, we are going to know his schemes. And that's what Paul tells us, that this enemy is full of schemes. Methodeia is the Greek that means crafty scheming with the intent to deceive. That's our enemy. He's not slumbering, he's not sleeping, he's not on vacation. He's always scheming something to destroy, harm, kill. It's Luther who says, For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. And that's why Paul calls us to be alert, be watchful. Amen? A slumbering, sleeping church will be destroyed in the sense that we'll be harmed by this evil, evil Angry, hateful being, Satan. So, six, we come to, in light of who we are in Christ Jesus, in light of who our enemy is, Paul commands us now, put on the full armor of God. In light of who you are and who your enemy is, it's a, it's a command. It's not an option. It's, not, it's okay to ignore that. No, it's a command. We must put on the full armor of God. And we saw that you put on the armor of God doesn't mean that the church must be doing more and more works. No. To put on the armor of God is to do a 
but on Christ Jesus. And we know that because Paul is very clear about that in Romans chapter 13. So in Romans chapter 13, Romans 13, Paul says, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. God is light. The armor of light is what? The armor of God. And then he says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Isn't that our culture? Hmm. Not in quarreling and jealousy. Then he says, but put on the Lord Jesus. So to put on the armor of God, to put on the armor of light is to put on whom? Christ Jesus. And we saw as we walk through the armor, the pieces of the armor, we saw how... Each piece of the armor is an attribute of Jesus Christ himself. He is our belt of truth. He is the one who comes with truth and strengthens us. Remember the purpose of the belt to keep us tight. And it's him that will keep the church tight, firm, stable. Jesus is our righteousness. He is our righteousness. We saw the shoes, the preaching of the gospel. And Paul says in Ephesians 2.17 that he came preaching the gospel. He is the embodiment of the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The shield of faith. Jesus is the faithful one. The helmet of salvation. Jesus is our salvation. The sword of the spirit that, that is the word of God. Jesus is the word and he sends his spirit to us. Talks about praying the spirit. And the spirit belongs to Christ who gives to the church. So the armor is Christ. First of all, when you look at the Old Testament, the armor belonged to Christ, belonged to the Messiah. And then the armor is Christ himself. That's the beauty. And he gives to his church. And it's important when you're reading Ephesians chapter 6. And he says, put on this, the whole armor of God. Take. It's all you in the plural. We together. Not you singular in the privacy of your home, in the privacy of your life. No, that, that's a corporate war, and we need corporately, corporately to put on Christ Jesus. Amen? And also we saw the beauty of the Trinity in the whole armor here. It talks about the arm of God the Father. That's the arm of God the Father who gives to the Son. The Son is the armor, and that's the Spirit who enables us to put on the armor. So, And we see in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, the use of the Trinity there, the God, the Father, the Son, the Lord Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit. Amen? And then how we fight. That's last last point, how we fight. We saw the, it's a corporate war. It's a corporate war. Satan is attacking the church. Therefore, we prepare ourselves corporately. We all together put on the armor of God. I was thinking about it's fascinating how the book of Revelation revealing Christ's victory, his power, and, and, re, and also the reality of spiritual warfare. There's so much of spiritual warfare in Revelation. And John receives that vision when? On the Lord's Day. It's on the Lord's Day that John receives this vision. There's a war going on, especially on the Lord's Day. Would anybody disagree that there is a war going on, a spiritual warfare, especially Saturdays and Sundays? Do you think Satan is happy and delightful when people come to a healthy church, ready to worship the risen Lord? So the first one 
the first way that we put on Christ and prepare ourselves is through the preaching and listening of God's Word. The preaching of the Word of God is Christ's sword to pierce the enemy. It's by the proclamation of the gospel that advances the kingdom and people are taken captive to the kingdom of light. We all here were once in the kingdom of darkness and we were brought into the kingdom of light. How? By hearing the gospel of Jesus. Nobody here was saved by birth. It's not because you were born in a, in a Christian home that you're saved. The Bible is very clear that we are saved by hearing the word. And the Spirit used the preaching of the word to create faith and repentance in our lives. And we saw, remember when you were talking about the sword of the Spirit, how in Hebrews chapter 4 it talks about the Word of God. And, and the Word of God is living, living and active, powerful, just like God Himself. The Word of God is living and active because God is living and active. The Word of God is an extension of God Himself. It's coming out of His mouth and it's as powerful as He is. So there is a war going on, especially during the preaching. And we know that because Jesus tells us in the parable of the soils. Remember the parable of the soils? And there is one that falls in a hard soil. And what happens? The birds. And who are the birds described as? Demons. There is a spiritual warfare to snap the seed and take away the seed from people's ears and hearts. So... And there is a war not only with the preacher, but with the listener. And honestly, from here, I can see clearly how easy it is for people to get distracted. I see everything from here. And if you stand here, you are going to see everything. And how easily people get distracted. And distraction is an amazing power of Satan to do a... Take your attention and snap the seeds. So... How do you prepare to come to church? How do you prepare to listen to the sermon? Requires preparation. Every single war requires preparation. What time do you go to bed Saturday? What are you putting in your mind, especially Saturday night, Sunday morning? What are you listening? What are you watching Sunday morning? During the week, how are you preparing yourself to come and listen to the preaching of God's Word? Requires preparation. Remember J. Adams, he says, you cannot, bring, you cannot bring a bucket filthy with mud and, and excrement to a place of clean water and think that by getting that clean water with that dirty bucket, you're going to receive and drink clean water. And he was applying that to the preaching. You cannot think that coming with all the filthiness, all the dirt that you have during the week, Saturday, Sunday morning, then you're going to be able to just sit and behold the glory of Christ through the preaching of God's Word. So there's a war, and we must be prepared. We must be ready. Amen? Not only the preaching and listening, but the singing. Singing is a powerful weapon against the kingdom of darkness. Throughout the Scriptures, we see how praising the Lord through songs is an armament, armament against the kingdom of darkness. The joining of our voices in praises torments Satan. 
And sometimes I'm here standing and I'm looking at you, you're singing and you're joining our voices. And some of you, I know what you're going through, the pain that you're going through, the hard time you're going through. And to see you singing praises to God instead of grumbling and mumbling, it's just tormenting Satan. Because the thing that he wants the most is for you to do what? To grumble and complain and argue and uh, uh, be bitter. But when he, we join our voices and we praise God and worship Him, it torments Him. It's a powerful weapon. Our singing shares in the heavenly, with the heavenly praises. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His will is being done in heaven. And we have all the angels, the glorified saints, singing to Him. And that's what we do in church. We are joining our voices with them. I like what Peter Lyhart says. He says, Music doesn't just prepare us for battle. Song is itself a form of warfare. Music is armor. Song is a weapon. When Samuel anoints the young David, the spirit comes on him, and like one of the judges, he's immediately driven to battle. It's not normal war, but spiritual war. Before David fights Goliath with a sling and a stone, before he defeats Philistines, he fights off the evil spirit that plagues Saul. Then he says, and he does it with his harp. He can fight the Philistine or the Philistine with a stone. He can put armies to flight with a sword. For a demon, he brings out the heavy artillery, a lyre of ten strings, and fights with his fingers and voice. Like David, we fight principalities and powers, spiritual forces of weakness in the heavenly places. And we fight as David did, with spiritual weapons, including the spiritual weapon of song. Then he says, the spirit is the spirit of war, the spirit of Yahweh, the warrior. When the spirit falls, people get ready for battle. And when the spirit fills, he inspires songs. Ephesians 5. The church marches into her spiritual war singing. We fight our spiritual war by singing. So my prayer is that we'll just let us join our voices every Lord's Day, every Wednesday, in singing praises to God, singing praises to Him. That torments Satan. Because what he wants is our mouths, our words to be grumbling and complaining about everything. Complaining about the situation around us. Complaining about the economy. Complaining about the government. Complaining about my spouse. Complaining about my family. Complaining about school. And instead, when you're just praising God, that's a heavy, heavy weapon to smashing. Amen? We saw also corporate prayers, how corporate prayers are a powerful weapon in the, for the church and how we clothe ourselves with Christ as we pray together. And that is because we are humbling ourselves. Prayer is humiliating. We are calling on God to do what we cannot do. That's why the remedy, you think about what is the remedy? How can I pray more? How can I pray more? I, I have a hard time praying. It's because you're arrogant. That's very simple. You think you can do things on your own power. When you realize that you cannot do, you're going to fall on your knees and cry out to the Lord. 
That's, that's very simple. As I said before, you can read hundreds of books about prayer. And your prayer life will not improve until you realize that you are powerless. That you need Christ. That you need to call upon His name to come and help you. And that's why prayer is so powerful in the church. A church that prays together is a church that shows itself to be humble. Powerless apart from Christ. Amen. And we see that especially in Acts chapter 16. You can turn there with me. Acts chapter 16. We saw, in, we had three sermons on corporate prayer, and we saw how the church in Acts is always praying during the war. And in Acts chapter 16, we see once again, and remember that Paul is arrested, Paul and Silas, they're arrested. Look at verse 16 of chapter 16. As we were going, where were they going to? Where? The place of prayer. They're going to corporate prayer. Paul and Silas together here. They're going to a place of prayer. The church would pray. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. And then what happens to Paul and Silas? As they're going to the prayer meeting, what happens to them? They get arrested. Do you remember? They're arrested because of this girl. They set this girl free. And then look at verse 23 and 24. And when they had inflicted many blows upon Paul and Silas, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. <laughs> They're going to a prayer meeting, and what happens to them? Talk about spiritual warfare. They're going to a prayer meeting, they get arrested, beaten. That's where they are. And then look at verse 25. After they got beaten, at midnight, Paul and Silas were doing what? Praying and singing. In the midst of the war, during the dark night of pain, prison, misery, they're praying and praising the Lord. They're calling upon the name of the Lord to do what only the Lord can do. Remember we said that corporate prayer is like the military radio, calling upon the name of the Lord. And then the captain does what? In his mercy, he sends an earthquake. And then they're set free. And then remember what they do is the jailer, they preach the gospel. So right there you have preaching, prayer, and praise. And what happens? The jailer and his family who were in the kingdom of darkness come out of the kingdom of darkness. They're baptized and now they belong to a new army. The army of Christ. That's all we see taking place. So prayer, prayer brings us to the throne of grace to receive Christ's resources against our spiritual enemy. Through prayer, God grants us wisdom to discern, strength to stand firm, protection from spiritual harm, and grace to press on. Amen? And lastly, that's the last one. Participation in koinonia and the ordinances. How everything that we do is part of putting on Christ, fellowship with Him, preparing ourselves for the day of evil. And we have participation in koinonia. We saw that last Lord's Day, Acts chapter 2. 
And the ordinances, what are the ordinances? Especially, especially think about water baptism and the Lord's Supper, the two major ordinances given to the church. And how when we are doing that, obeying the Lord through this, He empowers us. So, for example, we saw that koinonia, fellowship, is part of the fellowship is giving financially, Right? What we treasure, giving sacrificially. So think about the the giving of our finances sacrificially destroys Satan's temptation to make us selfish and stingy. By us giving generously through the fellowship giving, we are actually doing what? Fighting and destroying Satan's weapon to make us stingy and selfish. The opening of our homes... The spending of time with one another harm the schemes of the evil one in making us selfish and isolated from the army. As we share one another's burdens, as we encourage one another to love and good works, as we exhort one another to keep pursuing holiness, as we share our tables, our homes, our time, our hearts with one another, the Lord Jesus empowers us to stand firm and destroy all that the evil one is trying to bring against us. So, God's enemies become God's sons through what we do. Decimating the ranks of the kingdom of darkness by baptizing rebels into a new kingdom. And by being ready to punish every disobedience, exercising discipline upon the unrepentant sin in her midst, that she may be repentantly holy unto the Lord. So all that we do is part of communion with the Lord, strengthening ourselves in the Lord, and preparing us for battle. And let me just say that it's not just showing up in church that we'll do that. You know, just, just show up in church. There are a lot of people who show up to church. All these things, worshiping, communion with the Lord through preaching and listening, through singing, through prayer, through fellowship, through the ordinances, requires our effort. It's not automatic. Nothing that we do should be automatic. Everything must be costly. Worship is costly. It's a sacrifice. So everything that we do, the coming to church, the getting involved with the church, that's the only way. That's the only way. We will not be strengthening the Lord by just Showing up as if it's automatic. No. Requires our effort, our zeal, our devotion, our passion, our efforts, our intense labor. Amen? And I praise the Lord for a church like that. I praise the Lord for a church like that. If you're still in Acts, you can turn to Acts chapter 19. And I promise that's the last passage we're going to be turning to. Acts chapter 19. Starting verse 11, you have the story about the sons of Siva. And remember that they are trying to engage in spiritual warfare without communion with the Lord Jesus. That's what they're doing, engaging in spiritual warfare without the power in the communion with the Lord Jesus. Do you remember what happens to the, those kids? It's embarrassing. They're beat up and they flee naked. 
And then we read in verse 15. Look at that. But, but the, the evil spirit answered him, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? Meaning, you have no power and you don't bother me at all. My prayer is that we will be a church that the devil knows. The devil will never say, who are you? No, the devil knows who we are. That's my prayer. The Satan is concerned about our prayers. That our holiness disturbs Satan. Our evangelistic work irritates Satan. That we are known in hell. That's my prayer. That we are known in hell by Satan and his demons. And they hate us because of what we are doing for Christ's sake. We'll be known because of our zeal towards Christ, our unwillingness to compromise, our love for one another. That like Job, remember Job? What happens? Satan knows who he is. He's bothering me. Let me come against him. I pray there will be a church like Job that Satan knows and is longing to attack and create havoc. Because the moment that we stop irritating Satan, we can just close the doors and get out of here. And I would say the, the greater our holiness, the greater our pursuit of Christ, the greater target we become. And we know that. We have experienced that. That's why we need to stand firm. Satan will strike us. He will try to bring false teachings to the church. He will try to harm a relationship through bitterness, unforgiveness. He will try to deceive us. He will try to destroy sexual immorality. He will try to bring fear upon us through persecution. That's why we must be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Let us never put down our guards. And I love the hymn, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. Then it says, Ever singing, march we onward, victors in the midst of strife. Joyful music lead us sunward in the triumph of the song of life. And we are part of God's glorious drum of redemption. And it's a drum of war. And we are part of this war. And we've got to let this drama shape our lives. And honestly, brothers and sisters, the moment you allow the, the story of the Bible to shape your life and not the story out there, the moment you go to bed, you're going to be thinking about there is a war going on. The moment you wake up, you're going to be thinking there is a war going on. When you sit at the table, you're going to realize that there is a war going on. Your hobbies, the movies you watch, the music you listen to, you're going to be, okay, how is that affecting me in this spiritual warfare? How is that going to affect me and my church? And I just want to say that everyone is in the war. There's not a single person that's not in a war right now. We are either in a war against God Himself, amen, 
Or we are in Christ Jesus, God is for us, and we are in a war against the kingdom of darkness. Everybody's in a war. Everybody is in a war. The question is, who is on your side? Who is on your side? And you see that Christ's arms are wide open. <laughs> His arms has not closed yet, have not closed yet. Still, not yet, not yet. And all those who run to Him in repentance and faith, embracing, they become children of the Lord of hosts. They belong to the army that's victorious. I pray they would continue embracing Christ, loving Christ, treasuring Christ, and always being alert. Amen? Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Pierce us, change us, transform us. We are bombarded to, with the desire to be selfish, lazy, and ignore the reality of a spiritual warfare. And I pray right now that you'd shake us, transform us, and let us not conform to this world, Lord, or to the lies of Satan. Help us to realize that we are in Christ, that the drum of the Scriptures is our story. There's a war going on. The victory is ours, but we still face enemies. And we need you. We need you to empower us to guard us. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Help us as obedient soldiers to do your will. Your will be done. Give us our daily bread. Provide food for your army, Lord, as you have been faithfully providing. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, Lord. How we need you. Protect us as a church, Lord. We have a nasty, heinous enemy eager to destroy us, eager to destroy this local church. And I pray that he would continue eager to destroy us. We want to keep bothering him. But we need your power and your grace to preserve us and guard us and empower us. So be with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.